Welcome to Researching Happy. This is um, the podcast all about the stories behind the studies of the happiness and well-being world. And my name is Matthew Isiello. If you can tell, this is not a high-end studio. This is a room in my house. It's 6 a.m. and I try and record these before my family wakes up, but that wasn't the case this morning. So I've got a seven-month-old crawling around that you might hear. It's all part of the fun. Um, and this week, we're extremely pleased, <clears throat> excuse me, we're extremely pleased to have um, Nancy Hay on uh, from the What Works Centre of Wellbeing in the UK. And what we're trying to do with the show is to bring the best examples in the world of people who are, you know, um, researchers or around the world of research in some way. Um, who really have incredible stories to tell. And I think the work that Nancy's leading with her team is is amazing. It's a social good, not just for the UK, but for the rest of the world, pulling together information um, about well-being and collecting all this valuable data about well-being and then summarizing it for, um, you know, in, in, in really usable ways for, you know, government, for business and for social um, sort of community groups as well, I think is is just incredible. Um, I was going to call this episode, first you get the data, then you get the information, then you get the well-being, but I thought that would be completely stupid and make no sense to anyone. But it is kind of the point, in a way, without the Scarface you know, connotations. But um, yeah, enjoy this episode. Nancy was an absolute thrill to speak with, so fun. Wait till we start talking about the Premier League and soccer uh, and the highs and lows of being a soccer fan. Um, anyway, yeah, so like and uh, so I'm trying not to be distracted by this little one who's going straight for everything dangerous. Um, yeah, you can you can follow follow this episode wherever you're finding it. Um, that really makes a big difference for us to try and get get the word out about the show. Um, you can, you can subscribe and, and, um, you can, and, um, support the show from $5 a month on a, on a system called, uh, locals, which is very much like, um, sort of like a Patreon, but an alternative to Patreon. Um, and otherwise just enjoy, enjoy the show. So thank you. All right, so welcome back to Researching Happy. We are extremely pleased to have uh, Nancy Hay with us today. Um, I've got a little bio about you here, Nancy, so I'll just kick off with that. We, we were just discussing off, uh, off air that we have met once upon a time. Um, I think that must have been 2015 or 2016. Um, back yeah, in, it was too, uh, here a long Adelaide. time ago now. <laughs> yeah, feel, well, it feels like that, but... Um, Really pleased to be sort of connecting back with you. Um, so I have a little bio that I took off your website. So Nancy Hay is the executive director of What Works Wellbeing. Prior to setting up the center, she worked in the UK civil service in nine departments as a policy professional and coach, delivering across, across UK government policies, including constitutional reform. 
She holds a wide range of advisory roles across the UK and globally to bring evidence into decision-making and to fill evidence gaps. She's a fellow at the Royal Society of Arts, McLean Hospital, a Harvard Medical School affiliate, a fellow of the Zinc Academy, and a leadership fellow at the Windsor Castle Society for Leadership Fellows. So welcome. Thanks for having me, Matt. It's great to see you again. I was just looking back and actually... I was looking back and actually we were, um, I worked with the director of the initial center back in 2014, 15, as we were both setting up the organizations. So it's a long history of the relationships. It's great to reconnect. Great. No, I really appreciate that. And so, I mean, you let's, I want to start basically there, I, I guess. This is the organization that you've founded, I think, is that fair to say founded, um, is focused on accelerating research and democratizing access to wellbeing evidence. I would like to imagine that someone out there hears that goal and thinks that's such a good idea. You can have all the money you need to run that because it's such a valuable thing for society. Has that been your experience so far? So I was the founding director of the centre and we were launched in 2014 on the back of the Commission on Wellbeing and Policy by the then Prime Minister and former Cabinet Secretary in the UK, so the top official. Um, and you'd think that was a fantastic platform to attract a whole range of funders for this absolutely brilliant cause. And actually, in particular, what we're trying to do is create a learning system for well-being, mm-hmm. um, and we democratise and 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 make accessible is is the is the the tagline. But what we're doing is finding. Um, sharing growing learning about well-being with everybody across government across business across the voluntary and community sector and making that available so that everybody can use it and add to that evidence base so it's a public good in that sense um and we have been really lucky in having really fantastic partners and investors that allowed us to really crack the back of making some sense of this and making it practical and realistic uh, and doable and achievable. Um, uh, And you'd think that everybody lined up to fund it. What we find is um, it is everybody's business, but nobody's absolute top priority and lead. So there's no department in government that leads this. And this is the same in almost every, every jurisdiction. There's, it's the purpose of everything government does. It's the purpose of everything that civil society and charities do. So you'll see it in hundred-year-old charitable purposes, the purposes of societal well-being, and yet they'll be focused on one specific bit of it or several specific bits of it. It's quite big, right? So they'll go, we're going to improve societal well-being and we're going to focus on housing, crime and poverty, which are fantastic things to focus on, don't get me wrong. But... Um, there's nobody who goes, oh, this overall well-being thing, that's my baby. Let's let's focus on that. And um, so I think that is a really big challenge. It's it's everybody's interest, but no one's core interest. Um, so yes, I think funding is challenging, but we were super lucky having a cross-government, cross-sector partnership over the last nine years, um, and and we still continue to do that. But this this fact that it isn't somebody's core focus but everybody's interested is a real challenge, I think. 
Yeah, no, we've definitely have guests um, having that issue. And I think particularly in Australia, there's been a few that are sort of lobbying that it is just a missing department, basically, like you say. Um, so t tell us a little bit about, you know, what was, so 2015, I think I remember I kind of just joined our centre at that time. And wellbeing was, um, well, it was kind of a dirty word, I have to say. Like it was, it was still in, it was still in the, um, you know, pop psychology kind of world, I think, when you, you know, when you, when you walked into a, a, a university or a scientific um, institution like ours or into a government department, I think they weren't thinking very seriously about well-being. That's completely changed, you know, in the last eight or nine years. But um, what, like, give us a bit of background of what was happening at the start of your centre. Uh, so, yeah, we did start in sort of parallel, actually. So 2014, 15, we were setting up. So, I think there's a number of things in your question that I think are really interesting. So one is around sort of the context for our centre, where it came from. Um, the second is sort of the language that's used around well-being um, and mm -hmm. how seriously it's taken, which I think is really interesting, but also the growth of the academic field as well. So I might take a bit of those one by one. So yes, yeah, sorry. <laughs> the R no, no, but, but they're all important aspects of the journey and, and actually they're important for the conversation we're having today. So the word well-being, people tend to think is quite fluffy and that's partly because of the very public conversation there is around well-being. It's often associated with particular products or services, often um, closely associated with white uh, middle-class women, which of course I am, um, but that doesn't mean that's what it is. Um, I... I think the common thing when I've done a presentation, particularly around wellbeing at work, is someone, I think I was doing it to enforcement professionals, and they said, oh my goodness, what you've just talked to me in 45 minutes is so not fluffy, um, you've really changed my mind. And I think that perception is a really interesting one. The language itself is, but it, but it hasn't stopped it ballooning. So I was looking at the Google Trends yesterday, um, and I changed the hyphen of well-being, which is the grammatically yeah. correct term that was used pre-2014. Uh, and I, I took it out just for digital awareness so that you could read it more easily on the screen. And the, the, the search terms for well-being without a hyphen have, they're in their billions versus uh now whereas they were in there sort of hundreds of thousands in 2014-15 so whereas well-being with a hyphen is, is still quite small but that well-being with a hyphen is interesting because there are lots of conversations that happen so there is this public conversation marketing one it's actually everywhere in the public psyche it's quite a comp it's quite a sophisticated conversation actually uh, commentators on all sides of you wouldn't expect totally relating to it. it's a very human thing and people take it with them but in politics, it's very difficult words. Um, and I've seen it talked about in different parliaments in different ways. And that's partly because you've got a conversation that's happening in statistics and economics, which is where I started this from a policy official perspective, which is quite a different one to the psychology one, to the mental health mm. one, to um, the sort of wellness one. They're not necessarily on different bits of the evidence base, actually. There's a wonderful PhD um, by a fantastic uh, researcher that said they're using the same evidence base, but what makes you credible in one sector is the opposite of what makes you credible in another. So if you're happy with those two polar opposites of bits of the magnet, that's fine. 
okay so what makes you credible in an academic setting is very different and, and actually you may or may not choose to do those things but where do we come from which is a different question so um well-being has been measured um in in research from and and, and policy making statistics from 1990s onwards probably earlier than that if you go back and that's a really important um change that happened that we started measuring um at population level things that really positively matter to people's lives and that enabled some really great science to happen that then policy could use and so we're just doing a policy timeline here in the uk and i think um, the first sighting of well-being in legislation happened in around 2000 um, following those early 90s things and, and there was some really interesting consideration of the the data that was thrown over what that meant for policy making you know in the early 2000s which when i started getting involved in this and looking at how citizens relate to the states and constitutional policy in case you're wondering but um <laughs> so there's a conversation that's happening in statistics around going beyond gdp which is around well-being and so the statistical offices around the world have this really sophisticated understanding of what that means that is um those statistics that go beyond just monetary market value for things allow us to basically put some numbers and words to things that we're already doing in social policy making anyway but we can do it with much more rigor and we really need to because otherwise we're potentially causing harm which is the what works bit of what we do and then mm. um there's also a conversation in economics which is uh shifting from welfare economics to well-being economics so the the goal of economic policy is improving people's lives which we call well-being and so this economic discussion has always been there we're just better able to measure it now and so you've got these different conversations happening and all the science coming together including from um, psychology and health um, uh, and different areas so we came uh, following this legislation there's quite a lot of legislation in the UK around well-being now uh, laws that uh, that allow you to do it and need you have to do well-being in policy making and then in 2010 um we had the national measuring well-being program across the uk um and that consolidated the metrics into the national measuring well-being framework which is being updated this year and um there was a big focus on how you use that in policy making from 2010 so i was working with uh, civil servants across uh, across departments to understand that, okay, what do we do with this? How do we use it in practice? And there was a commission then on wellbeing and policy um, in 2014, which looked at the evidence and what you can do about it. And then on the back of that, the Prime Minister said, we're going to set up this centre to understand what people in government, business, civil society and the public can do to improve wellbeing. And in making that information available publicly, it doesn't need any one person to be the, the gatekeeper for that action. And we can learn together. So that's where the centre came from. And actually, it brings together lots of different communities who think about this in lots of different ways, from civil society and charities, which really comes through from the wellbeing data is something that really matters, to the economic conversation, to the policymaking conversation, to the statistical one. And the wellbeing economy one so it doesn't it's nobody's nobody owns this uh we're all holding what one bit of that puzzle uh, and ours is a very practical one about okay how do you do this in practice and the language is just oh we're often talking like across each other 
about the same things for really good reasons, but um, it's annoying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, it, it does, it does, um, it does strike me that some of the most exciting work is coming from the UK at the moment. Um, I don't know whether that PhD student that you were talking about, whether that was Mark Fabian by any chance, but um, we've had it wasn't Mark. On... It was a, a fantastic woman, but Mark, we've worked with it as well. Um, so the other thing right. we've okay, cool. been actively trying to do, uh, we funded um, a con four academic consortia across the UK, across four different okay. areas. Of, so we had well-being overall. We had uh, community well-being, work and adult learning, culture and sports. And then we did some further work on loneliness and deeper methodological things, which included Mark's work. And the goal there was also to grow the academic capacity across the UK as well so that there is um, there are people researching well-being in every top university in the UK which we now have you can get a job doing exciting well-being research in every part of the country um, and in quite a large number of disciplines and we have a large number of professors now um, as a, people who've worked on that program who are now professors which is just fantastic right. so if you want to research well being well, yeah, UK is a great it, place it, to do it yeah, great. I was going to say it's um, the UK just does feel like a bit of a hotbed right now for this activity. Um, and most of it does seem seem from from my perspective to come from um, the multidisciplinary nature of the work. And, and you know, obviously, like we said, we had we've had Mark on the show and and he's kind of like, in my mind, the poster boy of multidisciplinary work, bringing together philosophy, economics and, and psychology, um, obviously, and public policy as well. But um, going back to what you were saying about language, it's almost that your your it seems like the uk is, is progressing this much faster than the rest because you are starting to clarify what we actually mean by some of these terms well yeah i'm really excited to hear you say that that was my goal setting us up and i really am excited for that so we're as a center we're a bridge right between these different sectors and a sort of space where all of the so for a learning community to work you need everyone to have mutual respect mutual trust and mutual freedom of expression that's across disciplines, that's across academic policy and practice. And you need everybody to be able to talk roughly the same language. So we translate a lot and make it easy, accessible to, to people to talk to things. Uh, and, and that's quite important. Like we're translating not diff into different languages, as in we do have people who have got different languages in the team, but it's almost like, do you speak health? Do you speak economics? <laughs> Do you speak uh, and, and what language works in, in, in the charity sector or, or, or things like that? And so that it makes sense to people. So you've got this shared mental model about what you're working with. So some of the work we've done, particularly around community well-being has been and loneliness has been um, conceptual, working out what we mean by these terms. How do we and then indicators? How do we measure this stuff? Um, why have we chosen those particular measures? How does it fit together? Um, and so it has been systematically building, um, particularly where you have, like in healthcare and education, you've often got quite an established research field over decades, right? Whereas in many mm -hmm. areas of this area, we haven't got that yet. And that doesn't mean the evidence yeah. isn't good enough. It means we're not good enough yet. And how do we grow that in a respected and respectful way? Um, so that's been yeah, really very much part of what we try to do. Great. Yeah, I think a really concrete example of that, we've just been writing a grant at the moment for um, to, to try and deliver some of our work into um, uh, cancer survivors or actually people diagnosed with a particular cancer because we're in this medical institute, as you'll remember. So we 
we um, have been trying for a while to get, I mean, we've been doing a pilot in, in breast cancer survivors, but I, I remember hearing one of the collaborators almost saying like, oh, we don't need to measure well-being because we've got quality of life, you know, measures included. And when you pull out those, like, which is an error, I thought, you know, a, a, a misconception I think you hear all the time. When you go and you sort of show them like, here's what we mean by well-being, you know, like a sense of purpose in life, sense of meaningful relationships, happiness, blah, blah, blah. Then you pull that up to um, the quality of life measure, which was about, you know, uh, how able are you to get dressed in the morning? You know, there's a, these are very different things. So j- just to just to kind of paint that picture for anyone who's trying to understand what we mean by this. Yeah, and actually, issue. that's really important, actually. Um, so in the UK, we've got the quality, which is the health related yep. quality of life measure. And it's fantastic really, really helpful, transformed how we invest in, in healthcare. And actually, particularly, we've also got NICE, um, uh, which is a what work center as well, like us, which is looking about cost effectiveness, well, effectiveness first, and then cost effectiveness. And that's what we're trying to do for well-being. The challenge with the quality uh, and why what we're doing matters uh, is it's health related quality of life. And that's really mm-hmm. important. And it's particularly useful in that context how do you do it for other things outside healthcare uh, is one problem. But there's a number of problems, particularly with the quality that we're trying to improve on. One is um, in, in assessing the quality, we're asking people to predict how they will feel when X or Y happens to them. And then to put a monetary value on that. And there's two problems with that. One, um, we're really bad at anticipating what will happen to how we'll feel when something happens to us and we're even worse at putting a monetary value to that um it's beset by sorts all sorts of anchor effects so what well-being does particularly measured by life satisfaction not the only measure that we care about but one particularly good one is it allows it's essentially a measure of lived experience as defined by you or me (laughs) our own one's quite democratic in that sense um, and we can put um, a well-being value on different changes in, in money as well, which is exactly what we do, uh, at expanding that methodology, which is um, exciting. And what we really need is better, uh, more randomised, more, more causation studies to help us get more values that help us with this. But it allows you to compare the impact of uh, a healthcare intervention, like a direct healthcare one, with a psychological intervention, with a like getting people physically active, but also with things like sewage leaks or energy efficiency for low income housing. And then it becomes a game changer. Really exciting. Yeah. Yeah, great. And I, I think you, I've heard it many times before. I think I see, see, seems like your team are working on this too that idea of the, the well being. So the well being sort of um, equivalent of the quality. Um, that there would be many interventions out there that that um, would improve your well-being, but not your sort of quality of life in a in a physical health sort of sense or in a health-related sense. And if there are you know charities or nonprofits doing fantastic work, they're actually at a disadvantage without having these measurement tools at their disposal. I mean, everything you do in a in a charity is for the purpose of improving somebody's life, right? And that's what mm-hmm. I would call well-being. And um, chances are what you're doing probably helps. But like, it would be really good to be able to know which like 
charitable money like charities often don't have a lot of money or they're relying on volunteers so how do you make the best use of that effort that you're putting in like how can you have the maximum impact and that's where we focus how can you have the maximum impact or, or on people's lives basically great um all right great so we're we're uh just dealing with some technical difficulties thank you nancy i think we've been having a slight delay here so um this should be better now um where I wanted to go to was to hear about, it seems in a really basic way that what you're doing at the Walt Work Center, you're, you're collecting data and you're, you, I think you're a sort of a, a repository for data, but you're also then doing reviews of evidence. So I wonder whether we can start with the data collection that you're involved in. Um, so we're trying to understand what organizations in all sectors can do. To improve well-being and we're also yep. wanting to make in, in order to, uh, to do that we're also trying to make available the data that tells us what makes us happy so other people can act on it so making it public revealing it um communicating it actually very very simply um communicating it like you can't act on it if you just don't know about it and so communication is, is something we, we do uh, as the core thing that we do but there's another reason on the data. So one is about just showing you what actually, you know, I said about people were very bad at predicting how they will actually feel. Um, actually mm -hmm. showing people the data really helps do that, but also just enables many, many people to act on it, which is really exciting. Um, so that's one thing about what we're trying to do is make a show what the date, the evidence says um, to as many people as possible. And that's what the National Autory Community Fund helped fund it. The, the other thing we're doing on data is uh, the UK has uh, national statistics on uh, well-being and mm. um, a large number of measures, actually. Um, but it also has over 10 years of population level well-being data that in over 30. Sorry, lost my headphones. Um, and over 30 surveys okay. and um, a lot of other data sets. So we've got lots of sort of studies that follow people over time. We've got, um, yeah, just huge, huge amounts. What surprised me is, so the policy decision there was to make this, to collect this data and to fund that data collection as national statistics, but in all these surveys. But then it wasn't being used by um researchers in the way I had just thought it would do <laughs> and so um one we've done some of it ourselves quite a lot of it ourselves um uh, but also um we're now publishing the code so that as many people can do that as possible so what that means is and so actually we did some of this with you guys uh, we looked at your fantastic survey and yours was clever because it had social capital well-being and health in it which allowed us to understand about feelings of control that mattered, about the fact that asthma, uh, people with asthma had a, a were worth looking into further, for example, uh, in, in a way uh, that we hadn't been able to do before. So we want to do more of those types of studies, happy to collaborate on those, um, really excited. But what we find is um, there's lots of people who want to do that, but it takes sort of three months to download the data, get work out what it says, get access to it, um, have a variables work uh, and then we were also seeing when we were collating the evidence so our job is really to bring it all together look at how where we're at in the journey of learning make that available so that everybody can do it so we're continuing to build on this um, together collectively on, on this learning so that's why reviews are so important but um, 
if, if we were seeing some common errors, things like um, in the evaluation reports, which are just locking down the quality of them. So we can't have as much confidence in the findings. So things like comparing to the wrong benchmark, using the wrong year, um, just using the wrong um, low, medium, high bandings, like uh, not understanding how the data works, really. really. Yeah, I mean, it's totally possible to do if you know what you're doing, but like um, everybody was learning it. So we're trying to make that easier to do uh, and, and cheaper and quicker. So if you somebody else is particularly like the time use data, which is just so many, <laughs> like so many data points, um, how can we make it quicker and easier for as many people as possible to use and keep keep building the quality of that code and keep building um, the number of people who know how to use it? Uh, and just like takes three months off that and think about how much research money that saves. And um, it means you can then yeah. do it as a master's project or part of your PhD without having to spend a year on it. So um, that was part of the thinking on that. So um, hope, please use it. Let us know. Upload your code. Share it. Let's learn together. How do people find that? Um, I've got we've got a data repository on GitHub, but it's on our projects. I can share it. It's called Accelerating Data Analysis, and there's quite a lot there. Right. So you can see, for example, how local authority, like individual county level, wellbeing has changed over the last ten years. Um, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's just so. Um, it's one of the reasons I love following you on Twitter because you're like you're like the Twitter wellbeing fact checker. Because I think I see people sort of putting out things they're either asking questions or they're um just making some sort of assertion and then i just see like nancy pops up actually here's 10 years of data on that thing so you don't even have to worry about it we've already got it covered and it's just so powerful i mean that's obviously a bit of a silly example although it is informative um it just seems so powerful and i and i just um i'm hoping that there's a huge uptake but i don't know how, how that's sort of looking yeah, we get, um, I mean, that's my job is to get the evidence. So we can push the evidence out when it comes out, we can communicate it. But 70% of people who use our site are new to wellbeing, right? Uh, and we're constantly okay. bringing in new people to wellbeing. So if you think about it, that makes lots of sense. You've got people who are super keen, innovators, you've got early adopters, and then you've got people who continually um, come into this stay, into this field and want to know about it. And that actually makes loads of sense, right? So how do you keep communicating to these new people who are new in, who want to do this? And the other thing is that people come into wellbeing, look at it and go, oh, that's really interesting. Oh, gosh, look, we must do something on skills or housing or hope. Uh, and so they jump into that or children and people's mental health. And that's great. And so you're helping people find the way, but they're no longer in the wellbeing space. So um, very much part of the job is to to sort of show what's already been learned so we can keep learning. So what often happens is things keep looking innovative and we keep getting the same research again and again. And that's great yeah. if we're trying to establish confidence in that, those findings. Like if multiple robust studies tell us the same thing, it's probably true. Um, and that's great, but you need, like we don't need any more before and after studies of mindfulness interventions. Please don't give me any more of those. They need to be much more sophisticated if they're going to be any use now. Um, whereas there are other things that we've been so, doing forever that need researching. Yeah, no. But uh, fact checker is good, right? Oh, That's yeah, exactly just our job. Perfect <laughs> what you're saying, just completely perfect. I think um, we've just <laughs> we've just done a, um, a big review. We, we can, I can't talk a heap about it. We were talking a bit, a bit about it before, but um, my colleague, Yup Van Agteren, who, who um, has been on the show as well, 
he kind of made the point that we almost need to write a research wastage paper um, purely from the fact, so spoilers, you, sorry if you wanted to uh, get the punch out there, but this idea of like we found more reviews of uh, like more systematic reviews of mindfulness than like anyone could ever possibly need. And 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 then like you said, they're not actually answering the tough questions because, you know, at the moment, all we can answer is does it work? Yes or no. That's as sophisticated as we can get at the moment because no one's running um, anything other than those sorts of trials. There are some great studies starting to happen, though, actually, which is oh, really no, absolutely, exciting. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, but it just needs to take no, abs- that next step. And we yes. need to cover these other yes. things. I love the review work that you guys have done. Uh, we use it a lot. So thank you. Let's... Oh, really? <laughs> reviews, cool. reviews are really, really helpful. That's awesome. Um, when they no, are... I appreciate that. Yeah, go on. No, I was going to say, I, I, I'm wondering, like, I, I also was impressed with what you were saying there about sort of your commitment to, well, clearly your commitment to what works. And I wonder, it, it's so striking because I think we're, we're in a sort of a similar position in the ecosystem, say, in our organization as you are. I mean, we're not, not exactly the same, but in the sense that we're um, independent from the university system. So we're independent from the usual KPIs. Um, and we also sort of have this commitment to actual sort of real world change. And we just see it from afar in a way when we look to the universities that, you know, researchers are just, um, they're incentivized just to publish anything. And uh, whether it's whether it's going to come with sort of any real world impact or not. Um, so I'm, I'm glad to hear you're sort of helping nudge people along that way to actually Yes, like, yes, validation papers are important, of course, but actually there's a lot more that we could be doing. Yeah, I think it's about um, understanding what we already know and then working out what needs to be learned next, actually, and then how to best achieve that. So there's a couple of things that we see that are really important. And actually, so our, we look when we look at reviews, we also look at what research needs to happen next. And that has two important. So we look at policy implications, practice implications. We also look at what, what research needs to happen next and, and in which order. Um, and that could be something quite conceptual, like actually look on social support. We're just measuring it in so many different ways. Like loneliness was a great example. Like we were measuring it in so many different ways. You couldn't compare apples with, like you couldn't compare. So actually we need to go back to concepts, back to measures, get a better sense of it. And then we need to understand how they're working. And now we can say there's a lot more. We can actually say something works. Most things don't, right? <laughs> Most things don't work. Or they don't work any better than just a placebo, right? We should use that effect, but um, but what gets researched matters, um, and and so what you can then do is take that research gap to a research funder, or if you're a, an academic team looking for something to to support your application, drop in that this is needed into your research finding. So um, and that's really important, um, so that we can actually make the most of that research money that's used and that time and the effort and all of that. Um, and basically, can we make it cheaper, easier, quicker to do really high quality, robust research that people in policy and practice need? So it's also identifying things where actually, so like what gets researched is a great question. So people would there was a, quite a strong incentives around people who've got a product and they want to prove it works. And therefore, they spend money on research. And there's reasons to believe that or not, um, which is why we're here to sort of assess the confidence of it. But um, we're also thinking about 
what is it that's happening that doesn't get researched that actually practice really, really wants to know about? And so that's so that, that research is practice relevant, policy relevant as well. Um, and it's not just about getting a press release in the newspaper, because that's quite effective actually in terms of attention. But I do, I mean, that's the sort of thing where I point out, wait a second, you've got these results, you've called it a trial, but where was your control group? Like, that was just, as, like, what happened to the rest of the population was exactly the same. Okay, before you switch your whole company over to this new way of thinking, perhaps you might want to look at this a little bit more robustly. I mean, it's up to you what you do in your own company. But if you're like um, spending government money or whatever, then you want to be pretty clear that it doesn't do any harm. Um, So, yeah, trying to get that experimental approach more wide, happening more widely um, uh, so that we're sort of just thinking a bit more robustly (laughs) about what we're doing. But what gets researched (laughs) is a really interesting question. Yeah, absolutely. And so do you have an example that you could share, like where you've maybe started from, you know, something that you've noticed in the data that maybe has been supplemented with some, you know, maybe you've then looked and found gaps then then eventually have informed policy? Like, is there, have you, have you got to that point where you've been able to um, get really from the ground up? Yeah, there's lots of examples of that, actually. Um, A really lovely one that, um, there's a review coming out next week uh, that is quite important. So uh, in 2018, um, the, the government here did a, a loneliness uh, strategy. And loneliness matters probably in the negative rather than the positive. So social connection matters in, in, from our perspective. But loneliness is kind of the acute end of that. And we're British and we, we can't talk about the positive. We can talk about loneliness and mental illness, but we can't talk about the positive. So that's fine. We, we are where we are. Um, but so we in 2018, we looked at the evidence for like, what can you do? Like you want to do something about loneliness. What can you do that's going to work? Uh, and we looked at the evidence uh, and that's where we found a couple of things that were quite interesting and slightly difficult for large amounts of enthusiasm. So we found that there was nothing that worked for loneliness or not with any confidence. And we didn't find any so interventions. So this is no interventions? Okay. Yeah. So things and an intervention is project like something that you do uh to improve uh the outcome that you're trying to do so it's not necessarily i buy this Mm -hmm. product it could be i don't know as a charity we do this thing um or there's this policy that we do that allows this one we found nothing that worked and there were no interventions that were below under 55 so there was nothing for for young people like middle aged people either and we know from the data that um, young people are lonely, middle-aged people are lonely, as well as older people as well. And it's different types of loneliness in different places. And what had also happened is a number of uh, projects had decided um, to do robust evidence, which is fantastic. But they kind of jumped to doing an RCT, a randomized control trial, almost too quickly. And like they hadn't even they, the reason why those findings weren't good enough to be used in this way to say it worked was because actually they couldn't they needed to do a lot more work beforehand to get it trial ready or so preclinical trials we would say in other contexts and so and we were measuring different things in different ways and and so we had to go back and work out what are we measuring what do we mean build that up and then five years later and we had an evidence gap strategy and how do we fill those as an evidence gap map on our on our website and we worked with researchers and we worked with funders and we worked with policymakers to say, okay, you're going to do this. So an example of uh, funders is 
actually for people over 55 we did have a sense of types of things that worked so you could probably fund and start to scale it and do evaluation around it but for under 55s for young people it was much more you're in a pilot innovation space and the type of evidence that you need in that context was different so that was exciting and then five years later which is now we've looked again at the evidence uh, and this is um not yet published but i can confidently say that we now know some things that work we have a much broader right. sense of the evidence for age different age groups and um much uh, the methodology has improved and also the findings are more sophisticated so uh, and this has happened on a couple of other reviews we've gone back to where at one point everyone's like oh yeah it all works isn't it lovely but they're quite small studies and then when you go back and they're better quality studies actually the findings are more mixed and that's much better it's a sign of a healthier evidence base right um and that's exciting so that's sort of what can happen in five years with a concerted evidence strategy and a committed group of people who care about something that's important to people's lives wow yeah and i wonder how how um how relevant is it that you're an independent basically within this within this environment? Because, you know, you mentioned before about pulling all these universities together. They don't traditionally work very nicely with each other, I think, or at least in Australia. Uh, how important is it that you're sort of like this uh, independent stock, um, you know, stockbroker basically of this of this work? I mean, I think it's a really important institution um as a concept so we're part of this thing called the what works network in the uk which yeah. is a group of organizations yeah. that do this cost effectiveness in different contexts whether that's youth violence whether that's education whether that's um health all sorts of different things uh, and that is quite important because um you need to look across the evidence base right and to be able to find that evidence quickly to build on it all that sort of thing so i think that independence is important and actually I need to be able to publish regardless of what uh, a company or a minister says. There has to be a public output. And that is the point. Um, So the independence is important. I think this bridging role is important. But like I say, there's a couple of other problems on funding. One on well-being, like who owns it. And the other one is actually people fund research, often the primary studies, and they'll fund the thing that you're doing, the grant thing, but they won't often fund the middle bit, uh, which is this translation, making it available to everybody, um, uh, this sort of bridging role, which is harder to resource, actually. It's kind of a weird concept too, right? People don't necessarily know what it is. Yeah, but no, I mean, absolutely. And I think without a centre like yours, it just doesn't happen, basically, I think is is the honest truth. <laughs> I think that's true. So I've talked about the loneliness example and the civil society, so the charity sector and the government sector, actually looking back over sort of five years, we can see over 10 years, we can see that the the volume and quality of the evaluation research has really improved in those sectors. So I can say with confidence, even if it's not an academic publication, there are some really high quality pieces of work done by those other sectors, which is really exciting. I cannot say the same in the workplace, actually. We stopped doing um, so much work in the workplace around 2018. uh, And whilst it's some of the most popular content on our website, in fact, has been for all of those times, the quality of the evidence base around what supports well-being at work, despite like huge numbers more people being heads of well-being in organisations, loads more money spent on it actually the quality of the research has not improved and I think it does take concerted Mm. effort which is surprising to me I thought that would just happen but it hasn't and again I think it falls into that trap of 
we'll fund research or we'll fund practice, but we won't do that middle bit and we won't yeah. look at it particularly seriously. Or we'll do it just yeah, for I ourselves. Mean, yeah yeah and like i mean we fall into that boat a little bit and and we do have this challenge where um you know research research grants come out they often come out as like a targeted call uh you know at least in australia so we're looking for yeah a priority population or um you know you know some issue they're always oriented towards an issue or a population uh, you know workplace is kind of like the assumed healthy group of people in our society um, although I think you and I understand that that's not the case. So it is quite difficult to find research that would actually, or f- find research dollars, I think, that fund, you know, high quality work in that space. I also think there's, um, it defaults to best practice really quickly in case studies really quickly, because that's what the market kind of yeah. wants, but it, they don't work and they're useless in terms of telling you what makes a difference. Um, um, and so I think this needs a bit of leadership, really. It totally can be done. We've done it quite a lot. Um, but it just needs a bit of understanding that this matters and it's important to do and that you're contributing to something bigger than yourself, that everybody, and particularly bigger organisations where, I mean, people are just people regardless of where they are. Small groups of teams form in different organisations. You can totally translate a lot of this to different contexts that can't afford it so much. So there is a sort of public Mm. good value in that um, that isn't as clear as well. Um, I I think that's really interesting about workplace being... um, a sort of healthy population and they kind of are but they kind of aren't so if we're ha- why the reason why i care we care about well-being overall like what improves that but we also care about three other areas we care about place and community because well-being varies by geography and this sort of civil society community charity peer support helping each other strengthen civil society really matters trust all of that sort of stuff social capital so we look at pl- and, and that's why loneliness but we also look at working age and the reason we do that is because we're happiest at 23 and 68. The midlife crisis is real. We bottom out at 48 in the UK, 41 in Mongolia. Um, and who looks at that population? There's a lot of funding for aging. There's a lot of funding for young people. But who looks at that population? And that's where, if you look at sort of the founding bits for both your centre and ours, it's around these deaths of despair, actually, which is... Um, exactly this so deaths of despair are kind of the pinnacle of this which is sort of suicide drugs and alcohol uh car crashes i'd add in the us now um but but they're just kind of the tip of the iceberg of sort of poor well-being uh in that, that adult period and we also know that despite working age being so important employment is the third biggest driver of adult well-being so being in a yeah. job really really matters and so, and that's probably one of the biggest drivers of, of, of some of the well-being increases we've seen in the UK is, is employment um, since 2010. So that is clearly a target population, but like everyone assumes that they're fine, right? <laughs> and that young kids and old people will matter more. They do matter. Of course they do. But so does this working age population. Yeah. And I guess it's always that trade-off that we, we kind of talk about it at work, isn't it? It's like... Um not only is it a priority population, it's a huge proportion of our population. And um, workplace is just such a efficient potential lever for work, you know, for this, for this, uh, for this uh, ambition, you know, you know, they're kind of like, they're there. There are populations that are really hard to reach. 
um, yeah, you know, employees are generally much easier to reach. Um, so yeah, that you know, hope to see something changing. So you made a decision to stop chasing that evidence base. Was it specifically, or what was it that you stopped in twenty eighteen? Um, so we did all lots of evidence reviews. We took that to funders, uh, and some of it, some work got researched actually. I just kind of thought we built the building blocks um, for it to happen much more quickly than it did. Um, and we okay. And, and so the, the thing we did find was that lots of things work to improve well-being at work. So the workplace is a complicated thing. So one, yes, it's a setting people are there if you think about it in public health terms it's a setting like a school or anything else it's a setting where people are so you can reach people with public health interventions so that's one thing yeah. and that actually is slightly different to what you might do to look after your staff uh, because you think it's a good thing to do to look after your staff for a range of different reasons for retention recruitment um performance um, and, and that's slightly different as well and so there are different incentives there about why you might do stuff in the workplace. And when you're comparing what works in the workplace, people often say, oh, these wellness interventions don't work in the workplace. Actually, that's kind of wrong because often, yeah, often they work, but they're not trying to improve. They're trying to be a public health intervention in a workplace setting, which is a slightly different conversation <laughs> to the one we're having yeah. about performance. But one thing we did find was that lots of things work in the workplace. Lots of things don't, but most things do. And they improve well-being probably and they're often led in an ad hoc way by different sometimes a keen person sometimes uh, a different particular function within the organization whether it's hr or a senior leader and, and that's great where we see both well we're more likely to see both well-being and performance improvements is when there's an integrated organizational strategy so we focused on that because we were like okay that's interesting and in 2016 i'd say about 20 percent of organizations had a strategy i would say that's much higher now um although i haven't seen the most recent data but that's from what i've seen and when we looked at the and we did we focused quite hard on like how do you build a good one and so there's lots of information yeah. about how to build it how to measure it and how to choose things that matter and then um what we saw in the pandemic is that organizations that actually probably somewhat coincidentally had taken this seriously in the, in the year or so before the pandemic were much more resilient. And it's because they were much better able to respond. And we can see that in the, we've been able to look at that in the evidence, um, actually. So that, that is there. The intervention evidence is less well improved. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It's funny. Um, we just had a meeting the other day. There's a center here in South Australia called the Center for Well uh, Workplace Excellence, and um, you know they they mostly come from sort of uh, not at the individual level, but more sort of the the workplace conditions and how that relates to sort of mental health and and uh, quality of life and other things. And and it's interesting hearing some of those insights of what ha happened with you know working from home conditions, and they're almost telling this story of. You know, we've worked so hard over the years as a society to improve the workplace condition. And, um, you know, working from home has almost undone so much of that. I think obviously like the flexibility does come with some benefits, um, but in terms of like sort of hazards and, and um, all the other million considerations that have gone into the workplace, it seems like they've actually got a lot of, they've got a lot more work to do now. I don't know if you've come across of anything like that. Yeah, I, I think this is really interesting. Like everyone's obsessed with this work from home debate. 
there's a couple of things yeah, that are really yeah. important to note here is that only about i think 60 percent of uk uh working age population ever switched to work from home in the pandemic so it's not a huge proportion of people uh the other thing to say so most people continue to work on site uh, in various ways. Um, and so that's interesting in itself. Um, yeah. There are lots of organisations and workplaces that have always worked remotely or um, mm. as distributed teams. And actually, there's quite a lot of learning we can bring from that, which is what exactly what we did during the pandemic, actually. So we, we, we looked at teams that have always been remote. So I don't know, sales teams that work, don't actually ever work in the office together. <laughs> That's really interesting. Um, submarine crews, uh, people on, there's lots of different places that people work. So there's a lot we can learn from places that have always done this. But I think it is worth looking at. I think uh, places that did, there's a couple of organisations that I'm aware of who had these strategies before the pandemic, quite coincidentally, actually, um, were better able to respond and their staff well-being is much better i.e the resilience stayed higher um uh because they'd had they'd already looked at flexibility in workplace and they had the technology and all those other things to do it and like, I mean, like and, and so i think it's definitely worth looking at but there are people who are doing this and done it well that we can learn from which is the point and we should just write it down mm. <laughs> and share it yeah yeah <laughs> if only it were that easy Cool. So can I hear from you? I, I don't want to, I'll hold you not for too much longer. Um, conscious of your time. And again, I, I don't know if I've said it now that we've been recording, but thank you so much for your time and for being here. Um, in terms of like the big success stories of the What Work Centre, there must be a few that you are just so proud of. It would be just great to hear some of those. So I've talked, thank you. I mean, it's wonderful to collaborate again, by the way. Really enjoying it. Thank you for inviting me. Um, the big success stories. So um, the loneliness one I've talked about, there's a couple of others in that space yep. around student mental health. We now have a thousand papers a year on student mental health, which is exciting. Seriously. Um, yeah, that's been really concerted effort. There's a great podcast on that. I'm happy to share at some point if that's useful. Um, and uh, we looked at places and spaces and social connections. So the, the interaction between physical and infrastructure and social connectivity between people, social capital, that has also grown quite considerably and that's quite exciting. And that is pre-pandemic stuff. So we're still expecting a whole load of studies from the pandemic period to follow. So it sort of takes three years for these to follow through. So evidence use and generation takes time, takes an average of 17 years to get from the evidence to, to practice change. And that's an average. So a couple of other things, uh, and then the evidence itself takes sort of three years to follow, like a lag. So that's the other thing on funding is that this is a long thing. <laughs> it's not a short-term thing, yeah. <laughs> but it doesn't take a huge amount of money. We do it very cost-effectively. Um, the the other successes are are interesting in that sense. So um, we use three mechanisms: one um, communication, one uh, learning. Uh, and one is institutional uh, changes and so building it into systems so they do things differently. And we are an institutional change. So on the comms side, an example is we did a, a study on loneliness in London um, quite specifically because it was quite uh, unique. And we looked at those factors and unsurprisingly, people who've moved to London within the first last five years are more likely to have experienced higher loneliness. And um, we just published that with the Greater London Authority and somebody picked it up, decided they set up the Lonely Girls Club 
20,000, 30,000 young women part of that. That's really exciting. As an example as well, the, the power of just publishing the research in a public way that's accessible and, and getting it out there and communicating mm. it. Um, we've trained over 4,000 people, probably more than that, um, uh, which is super exciting. Um, and then we another example is um, we've built all the well-being methodology, including the well-being, into the Treasury guidance here about how you do policy making. And it's not necessarily the most innovative way of doing it, but it means it can um across all these different organizations whether you're making an application for for government money you can use well-being evidence and data in a, a methodology in a way that is robust consistent and with confidence so building it into that decision making system and then building the metrics into so the subject the measurement is key right you need the data to know how you better measure some roughly the right thing about how people are doing than not measure it at all right so um getting those measures uh into different sectors and making it make sense into them so we now have uh the fact that the national measuring wellbeing program is still going in the uk it's now published quarterly alongside gdp statistics is super exciting uh it's being refreshed being published in july which is super good i think part of us continuing to communicate it has helped keep that going and using it and understanding how you use that in practice. Um, we've also built the metrics into the public health data system so that if you're doing a joint strategic needs assessment at a local level, you can pull a profile of your place and the well-being of your place and its drivers at a touch of a button. Uh, and we can also help people learn how to use that. And that took less than 17 years, which is super exciting. So from 2017 to 2023, that change took and then yeah. the last one. I mean, that is um, just amazing. Yeah. It's just so amazing to be able to do that. So, I mean, are there, are there, could you give us two examples of the two areas that had quite stark differences in, in their well being drivers? So, uh, yeah, I mean, the other thing is that well being is now the overall outcome of what's called leveling up. So, I talked about there being, um, which is the main government social policy uh, and an economic strategy. Um, bringing together most social policy departments across government. And that, I don't think, would have happened 10 years ago. Um, that is because there are variations in well-being across the country. That, so this idea that uh, an average, how we're doing, isn't the same as like what's happening in Blackpool or, or Wolverhampton or wherever, different parts of the country. Um, and so that recognition, there are variations and that we should attempt to close them is quite important. And so that policy um, mm -hmm. has happened, is, is happening. How we achieve that is a different question. Um, uh, some examples of places. So we looked at from 2010 to 20, just before the pandemic, uh, we could see the local authorities, so the counties in the UK, where we'd seen the biggest changes in well-being, those four subjective well-being metrics over time and we could see the ones that remained resilient or not during the pandemic um but places uh like uh, wolverhampton um places in lancashire the former mill towns in lancashire for example also were particularly places that had improved um probably largely to do with male employment but a lot of other things as well um and then i think the other exciting bit is that you're thinking about so that like in workplace, like in places, the drivers of what we're all human, right? The drivers of well-being are the same wherever we are. 
they just play out differently in what you might choose to do in a rural place rather than an urban place or a town or like different geographies or different workplaces varies so our approach is understand your people understand the drivers of well-being in that context and then think about what you can do and then how can you maximize well-being from the thing that you're doing whether you're a supermarket in a small town or a university in a city or um i don't know maybe you run a the the river you look after the river authority in the place how can you maximize the well-being you get from that your volunteers the biodiversity, the physical access to it. So during the pandemic, the Canal and Rivers Trust, which runs the canal network in the UK, became essentially the, the nation's backyard, particularly for places that didn't have a lot of green space to use. And the, they were because they'd had their plan in place, they were able to tell us exactly how many people used the waterways for exercise and how much happier that would have made them in that context. Um, and we can calculate that and value it now. Wow. Yeah, I just, it, I, I love that idea of, um, you know, you sort of, we started off reading, uh, you know, that was kind of a, a line from your website, you know, uh, democratizing access to well-being evidence. But I, it almost sounds like you're democratizing um, almost like well-being responsibility in a way, which I think people want, age, you know, so responsibility, maybe I mean, uh, maybe what I actually mean is agency or empowerment. Um, this idea of, you know, there is local expertise, there's local knowledge. Um, if we can supplement that, and I mean we as in your organization, if you can empower that by the use of the data that is available, um, you actually seem to be inspiring all these small well-being initiatives from the grassroots level. And that just seems just seems incredible. And as you know, from the research that we did together, that feeling like what you're in control of your life makes a big difference to well-being. So the whole approach is intended to achieve that too. Yeah. Um, if anyone wants to collaborate Absolutely. on self-efficacy and control, would love to. We've got one on community agency and control coming out fairly soon uh, where we've looked about what works in improving that, like community action. But we'd love to do one on individual self-efficacy because that was the big thing that came out of the research we did together. Fantastic. How do you improve that? Really cool. Yeah, good question. Um, last question is like uh, this is probably not even really a question. Are you a football fan? I am soccer. Yes, football. Yeah, very much so. Sad season uh, though. Because I've me. noticed I've noticed some tweets. But tell me, who do you go for? Uh, so I support Southampton Football Club. Um, I've been going to their matches for longer than I've done pretty much anything in my life. Um, uh, really? with my dad and my brothers yeah because if you go from the age of four or five uh for 30 years 30 45 years then actually there's longer than you've been in employment that you've had a relationship that you've had like school yeah it's it's kind of the the the, the religion that you have you attend every week <laughs> but yeah it's been a really bad season uh, me and the prime minister share one thing was... that is support for the football club that has been relegated <laughs> yeah that's tough so they're dead last if i understand correctly right yes and i also know the data on this which is if your team loses oh, you're tell unhappy. me this is what i was hoping this is what i was hoping <laughs> so for this let's is, hear it. um this is the mappiness research so uh george mccarran and the team which is fabulous um if my team wins i'm happy for three days if my team loses i'm unhappy for five so i've had a miserable year really? um, i'm hoping now we've been relegated that um 
we will have uh, more wins. I think that this sort of shared misery, though, this journey that we've had together with like an intergenerational one with loads of people, it, it, there's something about sporting memories that are sort of important. And we can see, for example, the impact of the Olympics in the UK on well-being and, and value it and measure it. So uh, we, we, there is something about... Um, the shared experience that we all have of, in this case, total misery as our team being defeated. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember hearing this a long time ago. Like, I support a football club, like an AFL club here in, in um, Australia. We They haven't won the final since um, 1998. So they kind of, you hear like, you know, I was like, uh, whatever I was at that, like under 10 at that time. Um, but apparently, like, the economy boomed. They won two finals in a row, and, like, the economy boomed for, for, in, in, re, in response to that. So you can completely understand the sort of the happiness version of that sort of result. Yeah, we've looked at um, I wonder whether based culture events and the evidence base around that. We'd love to do that in sport. Yeah, amazing. I mean, I, I could imagine then there would be so, sort of like the downside of these things as well. Like we're talking about happiness, there might be sort of more distress signals that come from these things too. But um, I wonder, like, because I, you can you can experience such highs and lows as a fan. I my friend has just flown to Napoli to be there for the celebrations in Italy. Um, I mean, I think they're going to party for like the next six years i think those guys they're not they're not ready to stop i mean you still remember like i mean i wasn't even born when we won the cup <laughs> we still remember when we won the cup um and i still remember <laughs> the moments when we, we went to the cup final and we lost and i it was still a, a memory that we have together so there is lots to do that so there are obviously these positive impacts there's also negative impacts as well so the choice there is how do you map like this is the approach we take to everything how do you maximize the positive impact that you want to achieve through what you're doing and yes. spot and mitigate the negative one so the example is um actually regardless of whether you win or lose domestic violence goes up on a, on a match day which is interesting um regardless really yeah and then there's also some other ones uh, obviously you can imagine the the impacts of partying on a place or like uh how football fans aren't always the most all sports fans aren't the most well behaved, for example. Um, but also understanding more fully the impact between um, seeing someone play and you participating in physical activity, which isn't quite a straight line. So there's been a big focus, obviously, on women's mm. soccer. And I'm super proud of both, actually, the, the UK, the England women's rugby team and the England women's football team, uh, who've just been brilliant and super inspiring for my young girls. And I wasn't able to play after secondary school. Until, until secondary school, I wasn't allowed to play football. I had to switch to hockey. So I think that change has been hugely significant. And women's um, and girls' physical activity is one of the reasons for their poor mental health. So that's really important. Yeah. But understanding those relationships better. We have worked with the club's community foundations in a number of sports to maximise the impact that they can have in that area. So things like... Often the club is the most trusted thing, right? It's the thing that you identify most with, that you care about. Um, it's that sense of community is important. It matters to us. Um, but also things like um, walking football, um, accessibility for people with disabilities in the area. So, I mean, the, mm. the stadium's not used during the week. So can you use it in different ways? The difference it makes seeing your favourite footballing hero 
come and visit you when you're sick or being a mascot is something you remember for your rest of your life. So how can they maximize the impact and joy that they bring through what they do? And that's been really exciting. We've got them measuring well-being in the, the, the football league here. Wow, that's incredible. Very cool. That's awesome. Well, I hope um, for your sake, Southampton uh, are back up next year. I've heard that... Um, <laughs> I've heard that the relegation, or firstly, I wonder, the championship is your second division, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, hilarious. Like, I think I just saw Ted Lasso making a joke about that. Like, how is the second division called the, the championship? But um, I wonder whether a championship win equates to the same amount of happiness as a Premier League win, or even, for that matter, a Champions League win. Just that's a side note as a soccer fan, I think. But um yeah i mean i hope they don't have the same fate as um sunderland poor old sunderland i mean I watched that documentary even my wife who doesn't really get into it that much she we watched that and it was just heartbreaking <laughs> yeah i mean it really is like the emotions you go through and ted lasso is just fantastic i mean what a brilliant program about teamwork right um if you wanted to communicate yeah. what works around teamwork like that was superb um really great bit of telly very cool. All right. Well, that's a great place, I think, for us to end this conversation. I've really enjoyed it, um, Nancy. Thank you so much. Um, I'm just checking how far Sunderland is from Southampton. I'm noticing that they're literally top to bottom, could not be further apart from each other. So um, whether that <laughs> predicts your uh, success rate, hopefully, hopefully it does. Um, thank you so much for being on the show. I've, I've really enjoyed I'm just in, in complete awe of what's happening. Um, um in your team so um yeah thank you thank you for your time thank you and likewise really great to connect again and, and would be really happy to collaborate uh with you or colleagues uh across uh, australia as well so there's so much we can learn together let's let's try and create a system that really actively learns we can totally do this now <laughs> it'd be great to see it happen